0: to Afterburner, the Project Boom podcast. I'm Allison
1: Gundrum, a senior at Mount Horp High School, a systems integration team member, and the producer of Afterburner. On this week's episode, we get you up to speed on the progress our teams are making on our aircraft's design, go in-depth on avionics and simulation, and hear Boeing multidiscipline engineer Aldo Martinez describe how joining an engineering team changed his life. For all this and more, stay tuned for this week's episode of Afterburner.
2: This is Afterburner, the Project Boom podcast. I'm your host Shiva Valbenani, aerospace engineering major from Purdue University, and with me today is Colin Watson and Minos Park. Colin, Minos, why don't you introduce yourselves?
3: Hey everybody, I'm Colin Watson. I'm the project lead for Project Boom. I'm a sophomore aerospace engineering student at the University of Oklahoma, Minos.
1: Hi everybody, I'm Minos. Um, I'm avionics lead for Project Boom. I am a computer science major senior at Berkeley.
2: All right, before we get into it, I want to start a new segment just recapping what we've done in the past week here at Project Boom. Um, So here are some of the updates that we want to mention. Colin, take it away.
3: Well, we all decided to start wearing burgundy, I guess. For everybody that's <laughs> yeah. listening, we, uh, we're all wearing burgundy here on the video chat, so at least we're uniform in that. Uh, but no, it's been an exciting week for the project, for sure. Um, we are officially Project Boom Incorporated. We are a nonprofit organization within the state of Oklahoma, um, although all of our students are worldwide. Um, this is super exciting on the management side because that allows us to create a bank account and officially start Mm -hmm. taking donations there's an article on linkedin about all of this so check out our linkedin if you want to hear more information about that but uh cool stuff i won't bore you with the management stuff on top of that our aerodynamics team is narrowing down between our two aircraft designs and then from there they'll start doing cfd simulations with our new software that we got from siemens and solidworks so it's awesome we have a sponsorship from both siemens and solidworks we're super appreciative of both of those companies because they're really making our dream a reality. As well as that, our propulsion team has a huge round of bids completing this next Tuesday, which I believe is July 28th. Those are for the afterburner for our aircraft. After those bids are presented to our leadership, um, we'll actually start with detailed design and modeling of our afterburner and then testing after that. So that's super exciting because it's a huge part of our project. Um Minos, if you want to talk a little bit about avionics since we have you on.
1: Avionics is now done with component list compilation. We have identified a list of components that we will be using for our vehicle. Avionics team will from now on for about 3 weeks and more will be working on custom simulation engine project as well as systems level simulation build project. Two of those are highly correlated. And for a custom simulation engine, we will produce a Project Boom specific flight dynamics engine that combines the characteristics of our vehicle and the non-deterministic physics force that our vehicle may experience. For a simu- systems level simulation build project, we will produce a system level simulation that we can test the avionics team's state estimator performance, navigational performance, and use SLS to loop into the test flight data to better prepare for the flight day where we attempt to break the record.
2: So Minos, let me break that down real quick. So what you're saying is we'll be able to have a simulation that will essentially end up showing us what might happen during flight, right?
1: Correct, well, there's a few things to that. A PI for a research lab that I work for always said about simulation this. um, Simulations are bound to succeed because all the components in the simulation, uh, we are able to sort of perfectly optimize our vehicle for it. We're trying to model the real world in a simulation. And we could only do it so far with given limitations on computations. And we just don't know precisely everything about this world.
2: But overall, it should give us a good enough idea to really design around that. I think that's the important part, right?
1: Right. So what I'm trying to explain is the goal of simulation where we're, you know, we cannot perfectly model the real world, you know, like we could only model it so far. So any simulation we run, we are like we, if we iterate on it, we're bound to succeed, right? So that's kind of given. However, that's still useful because the vehicle we will be building is quite expensive and we don't want to crash it and burn immediately. I know avionics team was like, last episode, you guys were talking about how we were talking about <laughs> big red button about safety and yeah. uh, self-destruct. Well, you know, that is true. We did talk about it a lot in our safety and risks and mitigation review. Um, that was the one of the bid we had before. About 20 of those slides, I think eight slides were containing self-destruct it. <laughs> 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 oh but, no. Um, you know, I don't know. Those guys do seem to like uh, self-destruct. Anyways,
2: so. Um, All right, well, I guess <laughs> that is an, a review of what we've been talking about <laughs> in Project Boom for the past week. Uh, recap, we got some awesome sponsorships Propulsion team has got a a large uphill battle in front of it and avionics wants to blow the thing up. (laughs) Um, (laughs) As a student-led initiative attempting a task that has never been accomplished, it is important that we tell the story of this incredible project from the start. This is our brand story a group of highly motivated kids from all over the world facing more than one barrier. Cost, experience, time zones, expectations. These are all barriers that will be broken. The sound barrier is just the destination. and This is The Journey. All right, today we have a very special guest, Aldo Martinez joining us all the way from Los Angeles. Aldo is an aerodynamics engineer at Boeing and is also one of the key advisors on this project. Aldo, why don't you introduce yourself?
0: Hi, thank you for an introduction. Um, I'm an aerospace engineer. I work in stability and control and simulation design at Boeing at- flight sciences and advanced concepts. My undergrad I did at USC in aerospace, worked in Hyperloop at USC design team, went through a lot of the same uh, troubles, hurdles, and excitements that Project Boom is going through. So when I saw this project come up through a Reddit post, I hit up Colin and try to <laughs> introduce myself. Um, I went through a lot of happy moments, a lot of uh, stressful moments, and in the end, but that uh, Hyperloop got me to where I am. So I definitely wanted to reach out and see where I can help. I learned a lot, and I also gained a lot of experience from the, from that team. So this is me trying to give back. I've, I also started at USC a supersonic engine design competition. So we went through similar situations in the technical side. And now I'm part of Boeing, and 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 I'm also active in my current AIAA chapter as a membership and uh, awards chair. So between the context that I've developed in my professional side and during my undergrad, I definitely wanted to give back to the students who are trying to break such a heroic and I think uh, something that I'm passionate about which is supersonic transport uh, but in the end I think more than anything uh, we're cultivating a group of highly motivated engineers and I wouldn't want anything stopping them from uh, becoming professional engineers and helping us get to Mars. i break a bunch of uh, hypersonic records and so whatever I can do to help I'm here to, to offer. Yeah that- thank you.
3: Thank you Aldo. Yeah, we're glad
2: to have you on the show today. Um, I think we really wanted to touch on some of the things that you spoke about. Most of us, uh, me, Minos, and Colin included, are all in our engineering journey and our worldview, I guess, you know, we're we're in the trenches. We're digging through homework and, and exams. One thing that I really wanted to ask was, what was your journey during school? How did you go from that to become the engineer that you are today?
0: So I'm actually a community college transfer. So I transferred from a small community college, well, several community college. I was trying to beat schedules, uh, you know, when a class was not open in one community college, I hopped to another one. So that kind of gave me the liberty. Uh, went to USC as a aerospace transfer. I joined Hyperloop team. As soon as I got admitted to USC, so I wasn't even a full student when I joined the team. We were—they were trying to—they were trying to develop the fifth mode of transportation. And for everyone who that does not know what Hyperloop means, it's practically uh, a combination of a railgun, a, a vacuum tube, and um, maglev train. So you combine all of those, and you have a very chaotic engineering problem and i wanted to test my skills and see if i actually had what it took to to be an engineer so i went through that experience at usc i got a lot of uh, i met a lot of amazing people toured a lot of companies and again i developed the skills at, at hyperloop i ended up going to boeing ended up applying for one of their internships got uh, recruited and thankfully i was able to, to join the group once i was at boeing i decided to um to kind of get a little bit more exposure of what the industry gave me So it landed myself in a certificate program through MIT for systems engineering. Once I was in Hyperloop, I decided to quit the team and start my own design team. And that's when uh, I found an opportunity to do that with the supersonic engine design. And to kind of uh, be the team lead, uh, I had uh, been a lead, aerodynamics lead for uh, Hyperloop. So I wanted to be a full technical and kind of project management at my own design team. We did that for a while, but the time I was graduating, I was a senior when I started that. I just, it was more of a, can I really do it or can I not do it? And I I learned a lot, but I also learned that sometimes uh, time was not in our size. So we got what we wanted from that experience and I ended up uh, joining uh, Boeing full-time. And I think when you say, um, you we were asking kind of hopping into the professional side that it was an experience being at Hyperloop having what almost amounted to be a full-time job while still being in school. I know that uh, when we were building the, the actual concept in CAD, you plan for the best and only to realize that the worst is what you're given. So during our first uh, competition we actually built a carbon fiber frame. Honestly I think would have broken some records but um, it was a procurement issue that stopped us from getting that carbon fiber frame. So we had to switch everything, and, and we had only one month left for competition. We switched to aluminum. We sourced it from local auto body shops. We picked up parts from go-karts, anything you name it. We were going all the way through downtown LA. We skirmished everything in the middle of the night under rain and inside a container. Uh, we were able to build the, uh, the test bed that we ended up uh, taking to competition, but we weren't able to actually get into the, the, the tube. Uh, But that's when I realized I really like this uh, high-paced, high-reward kind of uh, design team. And those experiences definitely have paid off at work. It's just uh, learning to kind of push yourself and also seeing where you can provide help in other teams and um, just reaching out to give, giving back to whatever you've learned even if it's something just as small as a hey look this is how I ended up managing a stressful finals or midterms week with uh getting a project done that you're passionate about so it's it's, it's that's a little bit of my journey I think uh, we can address other questions uh if if you want to go I can definitely go more into depth about the whole recruiting process if, if you're interested
3: yeah I, th- I think one thing I want to comment on is um The importance of like extracurriculars and stuff like it seems like you said you were um, in a lot of different groups and stuff, because I think some kids go through university and stuff and don't even necessarily realize the importance of joining the engineering team. So can you kind of talk about specifically how that's helped you, the skills that kind of taught you that you didn't learn in the classroom?
0: Uh, Definitely. I think um, when I I started Hyperloop, I was in my sophomore year and that summer I didn't get anything. I I was uh, for an internship, but I still took some classes over the summer. But I was building my kind of my, my skill set and I was learning CAD by myself because um, being a transfer student, I wasn't able to go through the same pathway that a lot of my uh, fellow classmates were able to go through. So I was self-teaching myself uh, MATLAB coding and, and CAD to be part of a, be a, a team player in, in Hyperloop. So those kind of abilities of self-starting uh, your learning definitely helped me uh, talk to recruiters. I talked to a Boeing recruiter and we talked for an hour and despite him having a long line, it, that um, gentleman definitely gave me the time. We talked about design and he even asked me a simple question. Do you know how to do a detailed design? I had to put that I knew cat in my, in my, in my resume. So it was a fair question for him asking me. And I told him, honestly, I'm not sure if I do. And that honest question was because I didn't know what I knew. If they asked me for a part to do to cat, I did it, but uh, was it well constrained? Probably not. And was it did, did it have the everything locked in, and a certain way of being manufactured? Um, not the first time. So I gave him the honest answer. Uh, we ended up talking more. He he gave he asked me if I could do a, a simple key, and I told him that given the complexity, I I, I can definitely do it. And uh, he took my resume, wrote down my phone number, and the next morning he gave me a phone call for a, an interview. I went through the interview. Towards the end, he was very honest. He said that he was looking for someone with more experience, but he would definitely keep me in mind. Well, long and behold, a month later, um, a gentleman calls me and we talked for an hour. And, and that manager told me that he was given my resume by right, that previous uh, interviewer, and that he told them that the way that that I helped myself during uh, those um, kind of first questions and put a good spotlight on me. Uh, so that gentleman ended up being my my manager, and we talked for an hour. He told me where he was coming from, uh, similar uh, he. He had an aerospace background, but for his first years at Boeing, he did avionics. So it was, it might not have been what he studied, but it was definitely what uh, kind of the area that he wanted to be in. So um, he was, a, he had to learn a lot on the spot and he expected that from from his team. And, and given that I had expressed that ability to teach myself and to ask questions and ask for help. Uh, definitely resonated to what he was looking for in a candidate. And I ended up uh, deciding to hop on. He, he extended an offer and I joined that team uh, as an intern. I ended up joining again as full-time and I'm happy still in the team. Sometimes when you do a math problem or a physics problem, we give a lot of assumptions and those assumptions um, account for standard standard atmosphere. Everything is perfect. There's no manufacturing defects. But when you start building a design project, You start realizing that uh, the engine that you got, that you bought, is not exactly up to specs. And there's always some tolerances that you need to account for. And where those tolerances uh, land uh, will drive a lot of your design. So it's uh, learning to to think on the spot and learning to deal with what you have. Definitely something that you learn in design teams that a lot of times they don't teach you in school. So like you said, I... I, I've completely valued what design teams bring you. And I, and I encourage any undergrad student, no matter if you're a freshman or if you're just uh, before a freshman, you're definitely uh, reach out to any design teams and spend your time there. You're, you're going to be grateful for what you learned there. You might learn that you don't want to do some things and that's just as beneficial as learning what you want to do.
2: Yeah, I definitely want to unpack some of that because I'm thinking about that whole journey. Did you expect ever that that would be the path that you would eventually go on?
0: Uh, no. When I took up aerospace, I, I wasn't sure exactly what, what I was getting myself into. I liked airplanes and I liked spacecraft, but I really didn't understand the, the difference between them or how complex they can be. And as I was learning through through Hyperloop, I realized that I really like advanced design uh, and um, kind of uh, emerging technologies. And... Being in this team that I am in, uh, we see a lot of that day to day. So it definitely has helped me land myself in the, the side of the industry that I really am passionate about going back to speak to other to to other companies uh, they offer a lot of a lot of good things and it's always i always tell student, uh, students that uh, I reach out to that uh, it depends on what you want to do and what you're passionate about just enough as as your skill set because if you're really passionate about it then you'll definitely make that time to learn those skills I've picked up a lot of skills that before I, I never thought I would want to or if I, or if they were even out there
2: Wow, that's, that's really, really, I think, inspiring, especially to me. I would say that in my journey, I never had an internship opportunity up to this point. And this year didn't really help with the whole coronavirus situation in terms mm-hmm. of finding a position. But I think I've had this engineering insecurity that I don't really know if I can do some of the engineering that some of my friends or my peers are doing just because my eyes haven't been opened to that in industry through an internship experience. To those of us on the team and, you know, other people who are listening, what would you say to people like me? What should I do to take that step from becoming somebody who is insecure about my capabilities in engineering to somebody who could end up at Boeing one day?
0: Yes, I, I say join a design team, first of all, or pick up a personal project that you're actually passionate about. First of all, don't be insecure. I've had several mentors, and many of them have told me a lot of the, a lot what you learn in industry, is not taught in school, and that doesn't mean that don't value what you learn in school, or don't pay attention. But it means that in aerospace in general, it's very proprietary the, the the methods and processes that we use to develop airplanes, to develop missiles, to develop spacecraft. So um, when you go into school and you come out with your your degree. Um, you can go to NASA and spend 10 years there. And if you hop into Boeing, everything will be completely different. Uh, even even inside Boeing, when you hop in from team to team, or even when you're in NASA and you hop from team to team, things will be very different. So that insecurity, first days on the job, that imposter syndrome that everyone talks about, I've had them. And I've talked to a lot of my mentors and they told me not to worry, that, that what you learn more than anything is how to learn. And I think that's a skill set that gets really driven and refined when you're in design teams. Uh, like right now, I'm not sure if any of you guys were really Supersonics experts three months ago or two months ago, but now uh, you guys can definitely hold up a conversation with a lot of the people who design engines at Rolls Royce and, and uh, GE. So you guys, are, you guys have learned a lot. And I know that when I was talking with a lot of recruiters, once I started the Supersonic Engine team, I realized that just as much as I knew about supersonic engines, which let me tell you, it was not a lot. A lot of people who were in aerodynamics knew equally. And that doesn't mean that, that they weren't briefed in, in, in engines. That just means that that wasn't their specialty. Their specialty might have been flight controls. It could have been avionics. And learning an engine themselves uh, might not have been part of their, their, their team or, or their, their statement of work and you taking on this task you became an ex you become an expert in supersonic engine or nozzle design or simulations or avionics for supersonic engines talking to uh, myself you guys probably know sometimes even more about supersonic engines than i do i haven't dealt uh that path since i was in college don't be insecure i think that's the, that's the first thing you don't really know what you know and i think that's the beauty sometimes and if anything just learn to learn, which is very t- tautology, I think, over there. Because how do you really learn what you don't know how to learn? So, but, but you'll pick it up and you realize that in design teams, you'll, you'll kind of definitely refine that.
3: Yeah, I think one thing though that I found interesting when you work on a big team with, like us with 160 members, every time someone says something, you're like, dang it, why didn't I think of that? But um, every one of those opportunities is like a learning opportunity. So it's like, oh, well, that's how like either someone comes up with a good idea of how we handle a situation. It's like, oh, wow. Well, now when I go into the future, I do know that. Um, Or even like Minos, like he set up all of our Zoom um, and he standardized it with short links and then put it um, in the topics of all of our Slack channels. It was just a great organization thing. And it's like, that was one of my moments. I was like, why didn't I think of that?
2: So one thing I did want to go into was Um, I know you and Aldo have been talking a lot about the avionics and some of the issues or problems that we might face. So I wanted to have you guys go into some of that technical detail of what's really going on with avionics. And so you can kind of share with the world some of the insight that you're able to bring to the team.
1: For avionics, I wrote down a summary of what avionics team would do. It's a sort of generalized summary, but it goes like this. Build a safe, robust, and autonomous avionics system. The team will work from the ground up doing component specification researches to systems level simulation and experimental validation. The team will produce an avionics system in coordination with other sub-teams that will perform nominally during the extreme condition the vehicle will be subjected to whilst achieving our project's goal. So sort of this is a generalized goal and from avionics side of the things we have responsibilities on the electronics parts and that's what we've been working on past few weeks. So we've been researching into components that we will end up using on the day of flight on the vehicle that we will be flying and those components will be slightly based on different requirements than say a drone that you fly on your backyard because we will be subjected to such a high speed. I personally don't even know sort of when I started what the component needed to be. Is the IMU on the Pixar, is that good enough? We looked into it, that's about 800 Hertz update rate and the sensitivity of the sensor, all that. So what the team has worked on for a week and a half was to find the criteria that we need for a safe flight. So what sort of a minimum IMU data update rate? What sort of a sensitivity? Quick, sensitivity? real quick. Yeah. What's
2: uh, what's IMU for all the all the non-smart people in the house here?
1: Uh, IMU is a inertial measurement unit, which measures typically six degree of freedom, which is the your acceleration and rate chart. And based on that data, you are able to sort of feed that data into your state estimator, which tells you like, okay, your vehicle is in this sort of condition right now at this moment and as the time small time step changes or over the course of the uh, in between small time step you will sort of know the differences to better estimate your vehicle and what. so our avionics team was looking into what do we actually need for supersonic flight or enabling the supersonic flight and have a stable state estimation for our vehicle so i think that's a good summary for imu so we've identified a couple of criterias through the discussion we sort of identified two main things one was we will be using extended Kalman filter and we wanted to ensure the Kalman filter convergence uh, and the so what does thing- that mean well, this is where I like what Cole said that I'm trying to be the dumbest person as a lead in the team. So avionics member can tell you exactly what that is, but my understanding for extended column filter for convergence. So extended column in, in, filter takes in a bunch of inputs from different sensors and it sort of fuses, quote unquote, or that might be actual term, but diffuses the sensor data into one state estimation. So the goal of the state estimator, which we're using extended Kalman filter for, is to estimate the best of the components knowledge, uh, the state that the vehicle is in. So if say, for example, we have GPS sensor on board, and as well as IMU sensor on board, as well as say like some airspeed sensor, those three components will run at different speed. So GPS typically runs for hobbyist components at 10 Hertz and IMU for our project, it will be slightly different, but typically it runs at say 800 Hertz, thousand Hertz and airspeed sensor. Let's say it runs at say 50 Hertz, just a number. So it, the components are updating at different rate and sort of how do we fuse all that data? and No, this is like purely, totally different data. Like airspeed sensor data is different from your position data on the coordinate. What is this called? So it gives you a different set of data. And we're going to use that to sort of exactly estimate the XYZ position of our vehicle. Uh, So we're trying to estimate the position and attitude uh, exactly, given fusing all the sensor data.
2: So what Um, you're saying is that we have our aircraft and we have like GPS, we have the... IMU, which is like the inertial sensor, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have, you know, other sensors, and you're saying that we need to try to take all of that and then figure out the attitude
1: and how this plane is actually moving in physical space. Correct. And that is uh, important for autonomous navigation because, say, if a computer is, you know, controlling the vehicle, it doesn't have eyes, it doesn't have, you know, hearing, it only sees numbers, so feeding that sort of autonomous navigation algorithm exact the best state estimation that we can give it would allow us to better navigate our vehicle now some components are more important than others for safe flight now the definition of safe flight being let's not crash the vehicle (laughs) so there is varying shade of uh, Assurance that we could put on the safety part. So I I wanted to give an example, like if if a vehicle is going at like a Mach 1, which is we're hoping to or Mach 1.4, that's like more than 400 meters per 2nd We're using SI units in our team. So, you know, Power. (laughs) Anyways, Mm -hmm. um, so power to the the global SI, the SI units,
2: English units, American units. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to adapt to the whole global unit system.
3: It was a conversation we had to have another organization thing is we all had to sit down and be like okay what are we all going to measure this stuff in um and we all de- we have decided on metric because we were just like we have a lot of people from overseas and stuff and imperial is just literally the united states so while we have a lot of members in the united states um, it wasn't fair necessarily to make everybody learn an entirely new unit because we're all familiar with metric here so all
2: right sorry minos i know so Mach 1, right? We're traveling on Mach 1. What's next?
1: Say we're, you know, going at 400 meters per second. And um, if our uh, attitude data, gyro and acceleration data is coming at, say, 1,000 hertz, well, let's say for just ease of calculation, so let's say 500 meters per second. So if the data is coming at 1,000 hertz, that's about... So we will get a data update every, every 0.5 meter. That's like 0.5 meters it's about mm, five feet so typically like if thousand hertz is like a typical hobbyist sensor rate um and the uh, uav is flying like say a drone is flying around or a fixed wing is flying around some space do they're going at about what max for drone maybe definitely less than less than like 20 meters per second unless you're fpv drone um sorry if i got the number wrong but general idea is that it's nowhere near 500 meters per second. That's what I'm getting trying to try across. So, if for a drone to fly around, you know, it gets how many updates per even centimeters movement? So it's able to drive a good precise state estimation. But for our purposes, if we're going that fast, um, that might be not be enough. Thousand hertz might not be enough. And another uh, factor that drives the um, sort of sample rate for our IMU sensor was that uh there are different modes in flight and uh for our concerns we were concerned with dynamic modes and this is something that i learned on the job so oscillation will happen on the vehicle and if our sensor rate is at least not at least over the Nyquist frequency then we totally for those listening Nyquist.
2: Nyquist Nyquist plots. And, you know, those are things that we can use to essentially understand the stability of a an aircraft.
1: Correct. So um, we would have to at least sample at Nyquist frequency or based on that, give ourselves much margin, much safety margin to work. So So what
2: I'm hearing right now is that a traditional drone, right? Like let's say I have my like DJI Mavic Pro, right? And I'm, and I'm watching that guy and I'm controlling in the sky. That thing is taking measurements of where it is positionally at very, very small or intervals that are very, you know, centimeters, right? So it's very accurate. But when we take that and, you know, we put that at 15,000 feet and we make that go Mach 1, yes, right? That's where you're saying the major problems lie in figuring out what we're going to do to get that avionics data um so aldo do you have any any insights to what we might do to figure
0: this out i mean i i've I've been following along and i think it's it's a very interesting topic because right now i'm 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 just thinking and, and i was trying to come up with uh for everyone listening kind of a more Practical way of thinking it: six feet social distance. This, uh, nice. you're only going to get twelve readings from the tenth, the the one thousand hertz sample rate. So that's that's incredibly slow amount of readings because as you're going through every, because as you're going through uh, a certain distance, you don't know how the aircraft will be reacting. And it, it's amazing, and and I'm glad that you guys are already. Thinking of oscillations, and I'm sure you guys might have already thought of coupling, but if not, that might co- that that might come in very soon, um, because that's because that's with every that's with oh, with uh, fast uh, um, moving objects. But, you, but, but I mean, we deal it with in, in industry. I've dealt with through Hyperloop, and it's a lot, it's a lot to take in. And even if you design something that's amazing, and you run the numbers, and you're like, oh, I forgot about this coupling and this mode, and now you have to change. Uh, it can go all the way back to your, your mechanical structure. Can that material handle those modes of vibration? Can that material be induced to a certain speed? So maybe kind of to, to go back when we were working at Hyperloop uh, in, the, in the design team, we were able to, we had predicted to be able to, to go to a very high speed the only thing that was stopping us from pushing that le- at that speed was the connectors the connectors of our battery the material they were made with it wouldn't be able to withstand the thermal heating of running it for that long and so imagine building everything up your whole cad your whole uh your whole uh, structure your whole uh, avionics system and everything to run at let's say I don't remember exactly the the, the 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 speed but let's say 300 miles per hour only to find out that due to the power out the power intake of and the power draw from the batteries your connectors can, were limiting you to 200 miles per hour so then you would have to shift a lot of how your fairing will be designed a lot uh, which systems are, are needed and stuff like that based on a, a very minute component which was the connectors and like you guys said if, if you're running at that fast at that fast right and this is and, and this goes a lot with um, some tricks that they use in industry is running averages, like as as you're applying the data, you you run averages through them, kind of predicting and start to predict um what kind of interpolate between the sampling rate of the the the, the low um the low sample avionics with the ones that are sampled high. And between those two, you're, you're sometimes if you compare it, if you compare the high sample rate avionic to the low sample rate, the and don't do any filtering or predictive or, or predictive um, kind of algorithms, then the data that you're pulling in from the low sampling rate is is always lagging. If you do predictive, then you're taking an average based on the past. But how behind do you have to go? And what computational draw is now that is now added to your to, to your computer. So it, it's it's a lot to be to, to be considered. And, and and I think I, I just went around and gave you guys more problems than you guys had initially initially started with instead of giving you an answer. No, um, this the, is good. This is good. <laughs> we need this. This is exactly Aldo's, what I'm looking
2: for.
3: Absolutely. Aldo, Aldo said coupling and Minos just started writing as fast as I could.
0: That's I mean if if you look at um i think uh Colin and Shivo, you guys are both aerospace students right I don't know if you guys have taken a civilian control class but you're there, yeah. there's there, yeah. there's there's very there's there's the generic coupling which is kind of uh if you induce. okay so if you start um getting oh, it's 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 blew my mind and and i'm I'm committing uh kind of civilian control sin by forgetting this uh me, this coupling where it uh, fugoid. So if you induce a Fugoid moment, which is a coupling between two axes, so oscillations through two axes. So usually oscillations happens in one axis, and that's, that, that's where we call oscillation. If you induce an oscillation into another axis, that will be coupling. And there's a, there's a, mo- there's a mode called fu- uh, a Fugoid, and you usually test that. Uh, but let's say you're, you're running at Mach 1, and your aileron goes off. So, or your aileron falls off. So now there's an imbalance in your wing. And at that speed, that imbalance produces some oscillation or just flips the the aircraft. All of those things you have to with. Also
2: with that, especially like, let's say that we have oscillations or flutter and our whole aileron or a control surface, you know, that controls how the plane moves, whether it's going forward, whether it's rolling, whether it's pitching Mm -hmm. up or down. If an aileron goes off, and you have that imbalance in your lift you're gonna you're gonna essentially roll and you're gonna spin out and then you know project boom becomes it's boom amazing, yeah. <laughs> right?
3: yeah 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 and that's where the sampling rate i think becomes very important because um if we only have if something like that happens so rapidly at those speeds that some stuff can happen rapidly and our aircraft could roll over completely and one sample is going to be upright going fine and the next sample the computer is going to be very very confused because we're going to be upside down going the wrong direction or something and uh i think that's where we're going to run into or possibly could run into some issues where with that so
0: yeah and and you guys hit a lot of good points and 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 sorry i don't have those answers (laughs) i think i think that's the process of 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 engineering engineering competitions and just engineering projects that I, i saw I saw uh, Minos was, was getting alarmed when you said, uh, flipping the aircraft and making it fall down and something like that.
1: I think at that point we self destruct. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, not this again. No, <laughs> uh,
2: no but by the end of this, though, we're definitely going to get shirts that say, um, you know, something about self-destructing. Um, <laughs> I think that would
0: be really awesome to have.
3: <laughs> oh, no. Oh, this is hurting my heart. You got, every time you guys say it.
0: <laughs> no, but I'm I'm glad you guys are already. You guys are giving thought to safety, and um, it's 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 great when you bring it in so early in the design. When and I was talking to vignos and trying to um, kind of uh, have a conversation on simulation and what simulations is used for, and definitely safety is one one big aspect. Um, knowing that whatever you're designing. Um, and you end up building is good enough to uh, meet the safety requirements. Above all, you don't want to damage uh, you, your vehicle. But aside from that, you don't want to damage any any person, any people nearby, or uh, any depending on where you are. You don't want to 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 harm the environment or anything like that. Uh, so so it's good that you guys are paying attention to safety. Uh, the simulation once it gets built, it's it you're gonna realize that um, not everything's gonna go as 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 it is in the simulation, but. At least as, <laughs> as you're writing down the assumptions, you can, you can better your design and whether it be the, the actual plate, uh, plane design, engine design or simulation design uh, and make, it, make uh, corrections to phase two, phase three or wherever this ends up going. I
1: think that's one important part of the simulation
0: where you're ruling out all the
1: sort of things that you could expect to uh, run into. So to rule that out or not rule that out or mitigate that Mm -hmm. Uh, By running things in a simulation so that at least you could only deal with the unknown unknowns. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of which, um, could you share to us about the simulation and how it gets used in, well, have you used simulation in the Hyperloop project?
0: Uh yes so we use simulation to kind of um uh, well I, I kind of want to address um there's a lot of uh, of simulations out there right so there's flow simulations there's uh, uh avionic simulations electrical simulations and all of that definitely gets used in an engineering design and it's it's the core of how you build a design um and we when we ran um even when you're doing a test but that's that's technically a simulation and when we were talking with Minos about uh, what the what kind of like the term simulation will be used in project boom we we started to discuss okay so what, what do you want to use use it for and um, his idea was 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 a software base of kind of um, how to maybe get an experience of the airplane play. uh, and I told him okay so it's definitely used for experience that's how we get flight training uh, that's how we get uh, pilots to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, If you don't have the visuals, you don't have the feeling of being in an aircraft, uh, I I wouldn't want them to be flying the airplane. So it's good that they have that and there's a whole industry around building those simulators Mm -hmm. uh, from fighter jets to everything, getting that experience. Uh, But you could also use it from flight testing. So one thing that we were talking about is, okay, so once you understand how your avionics work, uh, you add a little bit of how your... um, kind of the, the shape of your airplane is going to be to, and how that's going to change while you're going at Mach 1, Mach point A, mm. And also how your flight controls will work, how the propulsion will end up being used and, and uh, you can't just throttle it up to full, full max. Uh, it might just flip the aircraft or anything like that. Um, so as you're building the simulator, it's good to kind of like bridge all those pieces together. And that's what we use when we were in Hyperloop, when we were trying to design the, the, the supersonic engines, piecing every little thing that you know into, a, um, into separate models that then call into a, a, a overall model, that then you can run cases. Um, like you said, you you want to address all the issues that you know can exist. And if anything, have um, ha- lowered the, the, the probability of them occurring. Um, and I think that's a that's a term that we often use is just probability. We 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 can't be sure of everything. We can't be sure that the day that we're gonna be tested that you guys are gonna be testing is gonna be sunny with no humidity. But the probability of that, that that can be can be accounted for for so as you're building the whole simulator, it's gonna be ideal. Uh, you're gonna be testing 20 some tests in in, in, in the end cage kind of in the the, the outer um Edges where you wouldn't fly or you would fly, you kind of need to define those and taking all of those models in to piece them together and help them interact with each other could definitely help you define them and give you a clear choice of, hey, uh, today we won't fly, but tomorrow we might fly because our simulator says uh, that the probability of us um, losing control is, is 20% and we can't go with 20%. We, we have to be below 5% or something like that. So that, that's kind of what we were talking about, how the simulator was going to be rerun. But like I said, there's endless, endless cases of how you can use the simulator from just user experience to or even just to get the crowd going. I know that uh, SpaceX recently re- released a very quick simulator of docking to the space station. And I think that's really good because it, it might help uh, motivate uh, Students and and kids to go into STEM and and, and the likes. Of, but it could also be training a future astronaut to, to do this. And, and it's amazing what we've gone into in, in, in the recent years with VR, AR, uh, and, and using simulators and those to even get people into kind of like the ability of flying and picking up skills um, early on or with low low investment in, in in technology because simulators cost a good amount of money in developing and developing costs a lot. But that could, that those kind of methods can definitely make it more available to many people.
2: Yeah, definitely. When thinking about how many assumptions we are allowed to make and how many we aren't, like how many we aren't is, that's a long list, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think definitely having people like Minos on the team, you know, to, I guess, worry about that and having you to help us out with, I guess, you know, for example, coupling, (laughs) seeing Minos just, his (laughs) eyes widened so much and he he was writing, writing it down and but having that um, on the team is, for me, because all this stuff, I'm like, ooh, it goes, it goes over my head. But I know Minos is definitely able to handle it all. Um, and I know you just talked about AR a little bit. Um, I don't know if you were able to see, but we just updated our AR models mm-hmm. for the planes and kind of seeing how it's coming to life every week is really, really, really cool to me. I know Colin was sending out that link to whoever could – could uh, receive it through iMessage.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We uh, the AR, the augmented reality, is what AR for the people that are listening. If you're not familiar with it, um, and it literally lets um, us put the aircraft like in your bedroom, or um, one of our members put it next to their cat, and it almost looks like their cat is sitting on top of it. Um, so it's really cool, and that's a tool we're going to use to um, one show ourselves because we can't manufacture a model every week. Um, so it's kind of cool to give us a walk around view of our aircraft along with be able to show that to people that um, don't necessarily have a CAD program to use. They can just um, open it on their phone. It just opens in a browser um, and pretty much all modern smartphones can um, project that A-mar- AR model into your world. So that's cool. Then on to what you guys are talking about with assumptions and stuff, um, because we're in the early stages of our aircraft design, assumption is like our favorite word right now. It's just like, all right, I'm gonna assume that this is gonna happen or this. Um, So it'll be interesting as we move farther into the engineering process to start using these simulations um, to start getting rid of those assumptions because it's so early on we're assuming this we're assuming that because we just don't have the numbers yet. And we don't even know the questions to ask yet sometimes. So I think that's exactly where simulation is going to come in and where that's like flow simulation when we're going to use CFD we're going to get rid of a whole bunch of simulation or assumptions we made. Um, and then also like flight dynamics and stuff with the simulations Minos is putting together. Um, a lot of those will go away. And then, and then we'll be flying and we'll flip over and we'll say, oh, there's an assumption we should not have made.
2: <laughs> yeah, I definitely think that by the time we get a year from now, maybe we're at the second plane or you know, the first one will probably not work out. I'm, I have my mind prepared for that. Because, you know, if you think, like, for example, <laughs> for, if, for example, if you what think you of SpaceX, like, this is great right? work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 100% first time, <laughs> you know. Um, but when you think of space, I was thinking what you said about Hyperloop earlier and uh, how the, the one battery, right, and the connectors was, like, the, the, the thing that made it not a complete success. And I was thinking about SpaceX on their fourth Falcon 9 flight the only cause for it to not be successful was the the rotational slosh of the propulsion in the propulsion system, right? So there's that one thing that could go wrong that we can't predict, that could cause the whole thing to go boom, right? And I think that the process that we're gonna have to go through is, you know, keep a list of assumptions and then gradually get rid of them and iterate each time that we do. So by the time we get a year from now, maybe we'll have the hope that the first flight just goes beautifully well. But if it doesn't, you know, it's just, you know, going through that process and saying, all right, now, where did it go wrong?
0: Yeah, like you said it might just be a small little needle, needle in a huge haystack that ends up causing this this uh, aircraft to be successful. And I really hope that it does. But if anything, I mean, I, I think just off the bat, everyone is learning a lot and is uh definitely developing those technical skills and like you said we talk we have the discussion right now it's like having a discussion with coworkers where we all come from different from different um kind of uh, technical backgrounds and we we realized that this other technical side brought up a big factor to what you were thinking so, so and again picking again on the coupling it's, it's it's something that you might be able to to help uh, alleviate but if you don't know that there's there's an issue like that you never knew that you could actually help out so it's uh, it's having those discussions and, and and i think that's very interesting that this team is so remote that typically when these discussions occur you're in a big amphitheater you're in you're, you're in your design studio and working everything out, right but you guys are now working through webex and trying to uh, have these conversations with uh, things getting cut off or people losing connections muted double muted but it, it, it's it's so interesting that everything gets caught well a good amount of things get caught, and that collaboration is still very active, because that's what's really is going to drive this team. That collaboration, uh, seeing different aspects from different lenses, uh, will catch a little, a lot of little nuances that can, like you said, decrease those assumptions and definitely keep you guys moving forward.
3: Yeah, I think that the communication, like you said, across that was the one of the biggest challenges we knew we were facing when we came into this, because like we don't get to sit down in a room together and just argue for like an hour. Um, we can do it over the computer, but it doesn't always work perfectly. And now we're dealing with people that are 12 hours different in a time zone. Or a little beknownst to me, there can be people that are 12 hours and 45 minutes different as well. I didn't know that was a thing, but there's time zones (laughs) that go by partial hours. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and I think also talking about what you said with people of different skill sets, um, like even, you don't even realize this, but Usually like like when you're at school and you're just doing a project for a class, like usually it's you're in your aerodynamics class with all of your aerodynamic engineers or aerospace engineers. Um, you're not working with the computer science student and um, seeing the issues that they're bringing up. So that's been super interesting about this project is seeing all the stuff like Minos brings up to our aerodynamics team and then they have to work together to solve these problems or vice versa or with propulsion because um, all these people are vastly different skill sets. They're all engineers and think the same way generally but what they're thinking about is vastly different. Um, And a lot of it, like they catch each other's mistakes a lot, um, which is really cool.
2: Yeah, definitely. um, It's been really cool, I guess, in the past hour, seeing how we were able to dive super deep into the very technical aspects of avionics that we're dealing with right now and kind of have that discussion on, all right, these are some of the really big challenges that we're facing and you know touching on what are the steps to even get there and i think that it was really cool aldo to have you on the podcast today and i we really appreciate your relationship with the project and you know this is my first time meeting you so it's like it's so reassuring to see you know somebody like you um, working at boeing and have gone through a design team like this and know what it takes to you know go from Uh, go from nothing to a a final project. Um, So I just want to reiterate, thanks again for being on the show with us today and being brave enough to advise us along this journey. I know, you know, Mach 1 uh, is a lofty goal, but I think we can try to figure it out together. So we really appreciate the support. Before we wrap it up, I just want to ask, where can the audience find you on the internet uh, if they want to reach out?
0: Uh, Yeah, I'm in LinkedIn, Uh, I'll definitely uh engage in a conversation there. Um, if anything, uh, send me a request. I'm there for us, Aldo Martinez Martinez, two Martinez's, uh, that is my legal last name. So uh, if you have any questions, definitely check out my profile, some of the stuff I've worked on. And, oh yeah, so you guys can find me in LinkedIn and um, LinkedIn forward slash Aldo I Martinez. Uh, that's uh, my uh, URL or look up Aldo Martinez Martinez. Uh, definitely shoot any questions, any comments, if you guys just want to catch up or uh, shoot any cool ideas. Uh, I'm, I'm excited about this project. It's been a pleasure advising this past week uh, and uh, getting to know the team. Um,
2: All right. Thank you so much. In terms of Project Boom, you can find us on LinkedIn and also we have this podcast coming out every single week. We're hoping to release it every Saturday morning so that you can listen to it at your leisure. Um, if you want to come in contact with me, Colin or Minos, just send us a dm on our linkedin page uh at project boom thank you for bearing with us this has been a super cool insight into the conversations that we have daily here at project boom and having the luxury to really dive deep into these discussions is what we want to provide to the world so thank you for joining us today um i've been Shiva albanani with Aldo Martinez, Colin Watson, the founder of Project Boom, and Minos Park, who's the avionics lead for Project Boom. This is us, signing off.